1: Dot .org enjoy
0: I'm speaking here today with Dr. Mary Hatfield, who is the author of Growing Up in 19th Century Ireland, a cultural history of middle class childhood and gender, which was published by Oxford University Press. Mary is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland at University College Dublin, where she holds an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellowship.
1: Thanks very much, Marnie. I'm very happy to be here today with Dr. Marnie Hay, who's a lecturer at Dublin City University. She specializes in modern Irish history with a particular emphasis on the histories of the Irish Cultural Revival, the Irish Revolution and youth. Her latest monograph is Nafina Heron and the Irish Revolution from 1909 to to 1923, Scouting for Rebels. It was published in 2019 by Manchester University Press. Mary, this book that you've you've
0: published, it grew out of your PhD thesis that you did at Trinity College here in Dublin. And I was wondering what inspired you to do your PhD research
1: on 19th century childhood in Ireland? Uh, that's a great question. It actually came out of work that I did during my masters. Uh, I was working on the Folklore Collection, which is based in University College Dublin's uh, school archive collection and it's a it's a brilliant collection of children's writings from the 1930s and 40s in ireland uh, so i did a project on that for my master's and obviously as most master students are it's very over ambitious but i sort of spotted this this gap in the history of childhood which was we had a few things happening in the 20th century but very little written about the 19th century so the project very much came out of that trying to figure out how these definitions of good childhood which seemed so obvious in the 20th century they were just in all the documents the sort of Assumptions about innocence and playfulness in childhood and trying to trace those back in time and kind of sense, well, when did that become the sort of normative version of childhood that's so widely accepted? Uh, so that's what led me backwards in time. So I ended up uh, looking at a sort of a middle-class childhood from 1800 until the 1860s primarily because that's where I was finding the sources and the documents. The project is very much then based on asking the question of who is talking about childhood. So I suppose the project grew quite organically then from from that, of being interested in that sort of time period and then wondering who it was that was talking about childhood in that period. And
0: what kind of challenges did you face
1: turning what had been a PhD thesis into a monograph? um i suppose probably the same that most people face turning a, a phd thesis into a monograph uh, your thesis is obviously, obviously written for a very narrow set of experts you're writing it in effect for four or five people to read your supervisors your external and internal advise uh, examiners so I, th- I think that was probably the biggest leap was trying to reimagine who the audience was for the book uh, and to kind of address scholarship in a more broad sense than I had for the PhD to kind of think about how Irish childhood fits within the history of childhood internationally and how the sort of scholarship is moving uh, more, more recently, I suppose, in the last, say, five to 10 years um, and what the sort of story of Irish childhood can say about sort of a wider study of childhood. So that had a real effect in terms of how I um, structured the book, both in terms of the themes that I was looking at, uh, thinking about gender, uh, class, religion, education, and comparing those to other parts of the world, as well as looking at uh, what's happening chronologically, what's happening in the 19th century that's really sort of shaping the narrative of modern childhood in Ireland, and how does that perhaps differ from what's going on in other countries.
0: And what do you think it is about Irish childhood that's different, say, from a British childhood or any other childhood? What's unique about it?
1: That's a great question. It's a question that I thought about pretty much for the entirety of my PhD. And it was a question that came up continually at conferences, uh, different papers that I would present, came up with my supervisors a lot. Um, and it came up again with the editors of the book, You know, what is it about Irish childhood that's sort of unique and different? And I'm sure this is probably a question that comes up in your own work as well, in looking at scouting organizations and sort of Irish boys groups. It's That's obviously something that's happening globally, but what's the sort of Irish inflection on it? i suppose one of the principal differences that uh i that comes up continually in the book is thinking about how sectarianism really shaped and defined our society during the period so From 1800 until the 1840s in Ireland, you have what Irene Whelan calls the Bible War, a series of sort of clashes, encounters, and um, protests that vary from the very petty all the way up to the very serious, which are all creating and re-entrenching a certain kind of defensive posture within their respective religious communities. There's controversy over children being enrolled in schools which don't reflect their religious affiliations, Uh, Particularly in terms of children who are orphaned, there's there's great concern that they're being sort of poached uh, by Protestant uh, philanthropists and being placed into Protestant institutions. So that religious conflict, which is it's in the background of the book, but it does it manifests in a lot of different ways in Irish childhood. Certainly in terms of the kinds of institutions that parents would consider enrolling their children into, and particularly for girls, uh, it would have been completely inappropriate to enroll them into a a a schooling institution that didn't abide by the same faith as they were raised in. So that creates challenges then for female education in Ireland that sort of play out in a very interesting way, as well as for boys. Boys is the only uh, time where you see a few exceptions where families would send a Catholic son to a Protestant school if they thought that there was sufficient motivation for social mobility. Uh, The advantages and the sort of Professional credentials that could be gained by attendance at certain Protestant schools made it that some Catholic parents really felt they had no other choice but to send their, their son to the school. But those sorts of decisions were always taken with a great deal of um seriousness, and they were indeed rare. Uh, towards the end of the period that I was looking at, so basically from the 1840s onward, there are viable Catholic alternatives which means that there's far fewer Catholic boys than going into the Protestant uh, boarding schools at that stage. But more to your question uh, in a more concrete way on on how the Irish uh, experience of childhood might differ from other places, the girls, uh, Catholic girls in Ireland are in sort of a unique position in that they have access to some of the earliest conventual schools that are being formed. Uh, We have a similar situation in terms of chronology in France but certainly Ireland uh, very early on uh, places great value on female education on providing an academic as well as a sort of accomplishments-based education system. So I was looking at the the records from different school archives, especially the Ursuline, Loretto and Dominican archives, uh, to see how they were providing female education at the very start of the century. And it's it's very striking in that respect that there's a great deal of emphasis placed on uh, intellectually stimulating and rigorous education at that stage. Uh, On the other hand, we have Irish boys' schools, which very much align with a I suppose more standard story of elite uh, masculine education to a large degree Irish boy schools are um, imitating and trying to keep up with the sort of elite schools that you see in England like Eton and Harrow those are seen as a sort of apex of uh, a classical education and Irish boy schools are are, uh, trying to follow suit that's probably what makes Ireland such an interesting place um, to think about issues of education and religion, because it is very much influenced by trends happening to the east uh, from the British experience, as well as the American. Uh, but it also has its own unique sort of inflection. And certainly in the rural and urban divide, the, the sort of dynamic of Irish educational expansion um, is quite particular and doesn't really mimic what you see in other parts of um, England and indeed America. And in terms of primary sources, because that's always a huge issue when,
0: you know, you're trying to do history of children and childhood is finding primary sources and especially trying to find something that actually might give you some insight into a child's point of view. What kind of primary sources did you find for this particular project?
1: I cast the net very very wide at the start. Uh, I started out actually looking at family papers, family collections in the National Library of Ireland and then very quickly realized that people don't necessarily people will reflect on what their children are doing but they don't necessarily reflect on the sort of category of childhood in those types of sources so while those were super useful and i used them a lot and throughout the book to sort of give a sense of you know uh detail and narrative color and that sort of thing uh i very much was looking at um printed literature to try and get a sense of a more generalized construction of childhood as as a category of sort of idealism and aspiration, so that came across a lot in the Pollard Collection of children's books, which is housed at Trinity College Dublin. They have a huge collection there of printed literature, and um, spanning from the 16th all the way up into the 20th century. So I really got my 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 feet wet in that collection, and building out of that part of that collection was looking at textbooks. So then from there I sort of moved to look at uh, archival collections in schools, in private schools. So the kind of the second half of the book, chapter four and chapter five, are very much based on. private archival collections held at individual schools so I went to to, to, on site effectively to those schools to find find those archives so it was it was a journey I can't say I had the sort of you know some people can work on one collection in one institution and build a brilliant PhD out of it my project ended up being much more sort of peripatetic I ended up um, having to do quite a bit of travel uh, around the country to find different bits and pieces
0: and I noticed too, and this goes back to some of the papers I've heard you give, that
1: you also engaged with material culture. So could you say a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I was interested in this idea of of material culture and the body and sort of, if you can't necessarily get... Uh, a child's perspective say like we don't have children of a very young age being able to write or communicate or um that sort of a thing how else could we sort of account for a very young child's experience so that that turned towards the kind of more recent work in material culture is is looking at how well what would have felt like then to be a child what would your clothes have looked like Um, how how would they have fit what were the sort of prevalent ideas about uh children's clothing so i was working on a collection at the national museum of ireland uh, in Collins Barracks and I had the good fortune to find that collection when I was still quite early on in my PhD. So I knew that material culture was going to be sort of a key a key piece of sort of thinking about childhood and, and what that actually meant for the sort of lived experience of children. And something that I found when I was reading the book
0: was um, I was impressed by how much interdisciplinarity there was to it. I got a sense that you've been doing a lot of reading in relation to sociology as well as history. And had you studied sociology before this? What kind of inspired that side of things?
1: I hadn't studied sociology uh, prior to uh, my postgraduate work, no. Uh, I think that sort of sociological bent partially comes from my uh, sort of sense of foreignness about schools Uh, institutions and schools always have struck me as being quite strange places in that we send in large group of children into a room uh, with one or two adults and after 14 years we expect them to emerge as uh, members of society or indeed if it's in our own time then it's much much later obviously that we expect them to emerge as uh, good members of society but certainly back in the day uh, there's an expectation of the school in the 19th century which is quite unique and really sort of positivistic in what it uh, believes in itself that it can achieve in this sort of, you know, the the great deal of optimism that comes out of the Enlightenment in this project of being able to reform society by way of the school. I think we are, in a sense, living in a much more cynical age, uh, particularly when it comes to education. But uh, that's probably always sort of an interest that I had was education and then perhaps the more cynical side of socialization, enculturation, and how the school functions in society. And I suppose it's also going back to that older question, again, of how do institutions and professional bodies sort of become involved in the private life of the family during the 19th century? And the other thing that, uh, I, I suppose this
0: is more speaking from my own experience, is I find that one research project has a tendency to lead to the next research project. And did you find that with this? Did you find the seeds to your current research in the work that you did for this particular book or have you gone in a completely new direction?
1: Yes, uh, I did find the uh, seeds for my current project in in this this book project. When I was going through the book manuscript, I was very aware that uh, I was gonna be mean and lean with the cuts and there was gonna be things that simply couldn't make it in uh, to the manuscript. So I'm working now, primarily on actually what's what's in the first chapter of the book which is the theme of medicalization on childhood so i'm looking at the uh, the emergence of pediatrics in ireland uh, going back a little bit further into the seven, uh, 18th century um and thinking about how the child body is transformed by the by the medical gaze and by this sort of emerging network of um professional men and credentialed Professionals that are very interested in in children's abnormalities and deformities. And by the end of the 19th century, they're very interested in the the healthy child and the sort of normative development side of children. So that all has a sort of knock on effect then when legal definitions of childhood are being put forth uh, towards the end of the 1870s and 1880s medical professionals are very much instrumental in defining what is an abusive childhood or what is a healthy childhood and uh, that story in ireland uh, has has significant ramifications into the 20th century and do you have any sense of where you know the history of irish childhood
0: you know what sort of trends beyond you know you've identified a couple of areas that you want to continue researching where do you see that going more generally in terms of studies of
1: irish childhood beyond your own work where where do you see the trends happening um there's been some great work done recently on sort of the history of emotions and how that's kind of getting teamed up with the history of childhood uh Stephanie Olson's work on this uh I have just read recently and thought it was really useful in thinking about kind of global patterns in in childhood uh and, and how emotion might be, the history of emotion might be a way to kind of enter into that. Because I think that that, that is something that coming away from it and like reading your own work and sort of the, the field of Irish the history of Irish childhood now, there's so much commonality across time periods that I don't think we really could have appreciated five or 10 years ago simply because the scholarship wasn't there in terms of how people are thinking about children as being dependent or innocent or kind of needing needing to be shielded in some way from from bad influences. And I think maybe there's kind of a, there's a rich sort of world there in the history of emotion and thinking about effective relationships kind of in a new way. I mean, the history of childhood started out in the 1960s thinking about effective relationships, but you know, the history of emotion, maybe giving us a new way to look at those older questions about the modern family and how parents and children relate to each other, as well as how siblings relate to children uh, and that sort of a thing. So there's great work being done on siblings as well that really I'm interested in. I can't wait to see Shannon Devlin up in Queens is doing some work on that. Uh, so it's, it's an exciting field. I think it's an exciting time to be working in the field. Those, those themes in particular stand out to me as being quite exciting to think about. that sounds good
0: and it sounds like you've kind of got given us some hints of other researchers that we should be looking out for um is there anything else if you were going to say one thing about your book like why
1: should somebody read this book if you were trying to convince them what what would you tell them i'm terrible at self-promotion so uh the question of why somebody should buy this book is uh is going to be a difficult one for me to answer but uh it is a book where I was trying to think about class and Irish society in a more expansive way and think about how education functions more broadly. So I think if somebody picks it up and thinks it's just about boys and girls and there sort of, you know, nostalgic reflections on what it was like to grow up in Ireland and, oh, do you know, it was so hard growing up back in those days. Or, you know, if that's the sort of expectation when you pick the book up, I think you might be pleasantly surprised uh, when you give it a read that it's actually kind of trying to work out a little bit more concretely how socialisation and identities uh, were being sort of inculcated in schools, in families, in different parts of Ireland during this period and how that might actually add to something more broadly about how Irish society is functioning in that early 19th century period. so I think it hopefully is saying something more broadly about the cultural history of Ireland uh, and it's certainly not just sort of a nostalgic look into the past of, you know, the lovely time that it used to be in the, in the rosy fields of Ireland. No, it's certainly not that. And I think that one of the things I liked
0: about the book was the way in which it grapples with social class, very straightforwardly grapples with social class. It's not just about childhood. It's not just about gender and often you know we talk about britain being very much a class-based society but i think ireland is as well
1: and i think that comes across very strongly in this book thanks very much yeah uh I hope I that that would come across in that, uh, you know, the history of Irish childhood, we, we do use the word class quite often in, in in how we talk about it. But we're not always exact in what we mean by class and how that actually plays out. This book, in, in its focus on middle class childhood, uh, is trying to sort of establish who were the power brokers, in a sense, of that category of childhood. Uh, I've sort of alluded to it already, but uh, in my current project as well, it's it's very much charting who are the professional networks of of the so-called self-appointed you know childhood experts who are these people and you know the the sort of the background to them is that they're they're almost all united by their their class background which is they're they're almost all middle class and so it's that question of why is it that the middle classes take such a huge interest in in children and childhood and indeed they take an interest in not just their own children but in the children of the working classes so that has a knock-on effect then when we think about legal definitions and indeed a lot of the the charitable and religious institutions that are set up to care for for children Across the modern period, the historiography of class is such a theory-laden, widely written-about field. I mean, it's a you can do a hundred books about the nature and use of class uh, within historical writing. So I can I can sort of understand the a certain amount of reluctance of historians to engage with that literature. It is very expansive, and that has kind of resulted, in a sense, with historians being a little bit ambiguous about the way that they use class in an Irish context. Uh, So I'm hoping that in in future historians will be able to sort of think a little bit more critically about those categories and not simply just ascribe working class to a childhood uh, based, you know, on the profession of the father. I think it's helpful to think very critically about how we ascribe those categories and think about class in a more holistic sense, which is a child might have been born to working class parents, but if he attended uh, Belfast Academy or went on to matriculate at Trinity College Dublin, well, then how far can we really say that his childhood was working class if it was experienced in these uh, relatively elite institutions? So I think it's it's you know kind of thinking about class and age across the life course and how class is actually quite a, a mutable category. I think it also throws up another interesting question in Irish historiography, which is the focus on religion, which I actually spoke about earlier. That's typically the the main framework for seeing Irish history is that it's just this perennial conflict between Protestant and Catholic. Uh, my work kind of tried to look at class as a way of saying. Well, the middle classes, both Protestant and Catholic, actually had a huge degree of cultural commonality. And certainly in their aspirations for their children and their sense of the future and modernity, both Catholic and Protestant schools are fitting out their students effectively in the same way. And I think the qualities of female education, the qualities of masculine education... Are actually quite similar across the religious divide and I think pointing to that suggests something a little bit deeper about the nature of uh, power dynamics and and religious difference
0: and I think it's great that your book actually does that you take it on and I think that's you know again something new that you're bringing to the table with this book and um, so thank you for taking the time to, to Talk to me about the book and
1: uh, it kind of, for me, brings a whole new dimension to it to actually talk to you about it. Well, thanks, Marnie. It's uh, it's been great to chat to you today as well. Uh, I'm delighted that uh, we could take the time to do this. Uh, Very much appreciated. And I hope listeners might look into uh, your own work as well. Uh, And thanks very much. All the best.